Okay, good morning. I'm so thankful y'all are here. I was this morning, I was drinking my coffee and it was still dark and it felt like it stayed dark forever and I thought it's never going to get light and it's raining and if it's just me and five good friends at Bible study this morning, that's going to be just fine. But I am really, really, really thankful y'all are here and that you came out in the rain. Um, if you would go ahead and open up, it's going to help you today, if you will keep your Bibles open the whole time to Colossians chapter 3. So if you'd go ahead and open up, um, if you have your study guide and you would prefer to look there, it's on page 38, I think, maybe. Um, and as Paul often does in his letters that he writes and in how he teaches, um, he starts by telling churches what is already true of them, what God has already done for them in Christ, and then he moves on to practical application. And so in the first chapters of Colossians, that's what we've gotten from Paul, a lot of what is true, what is true about us in Christ. And starting here in chapter 3, verse 5, and really on through the rest of the book, it is very practical. He says, this is your position. You are hidden in Christ. And now let's talk practical because there are things for you to do. And so let's start reading. And I'm actually going to read at the beginning of Colossians um, what was taught last time we were together to get just a little snippet of that. Remember what your position is. And then in verse 5, we'll move into, and here comes the practical stuff. Okay? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And here comes the practical. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul is getting a little bossy. He's saying, you have been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. And now here's what you're going to do next. Because that has practical implications on your life, dear church. He says, it's time for you to put off the old self. What is earthly, sinful, we could think of it as dirty. That's going to come in handy in just a minute. And put on the new self, what is holy, righteous, clean, if you will. 
The new self, it's being conformed to the image of Jesus. This new self is being made more and more like Jesus. So that language of putting off and putting on lends very easily to putting off and putting on dirty clothes and clean clothes. And the Bible talks that way a lot. It talks about our sin as filthy rags, and it talks about righteousness as the the garment, the robe, the clean robe of Christ. That's a really common way that the Bible talks about us. So I really like to be clean. When I was in the first grade, my teacher called my mom and said, Anna is going to the bathroom all the time. And I started to worry about her, so I sent a friend with her. I just started sending a friend with her to see what was going on, and she was washing her hands, and she washes her hands all the time. You need to work with your child on being dirty and being okay with it. You need to, like, play in some Play-Doh and get kind of slimy. I love to be clean. I wash my hair more than I should. I mean, you know, dry shampoo, whatever. I'm going to wash it every day, maybe twice. I love to be clean. I can think about the two times in my life that I was the dirtiest, and they were both in high school. The first was, well, no, the second, the second most dirty I've ever been was my senior year in high school, and you know you have field day, and you play the games, and it's so much fun. Well, somebody in, like, the best bad idea ever created a mud pit, and the senior class played in the mud. It was amazing. It was so much fun. I think one person like got their foot cut and got stitches. But other than that, it was really fun. And we were nasty. That's the second most dirty. The first most dirty, also in high school. Dance team initiation. You had a big sister. You showed up one day to summer practice. You didn't know when it was going to be. They dressed you up like a fool. They put makeup on you like a clown, and then they covered you in food, various food, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, pickle relish, whatever. It was completely disgusting. It was completely disgusting. On both counts, those nasty clothes, there was no washing them and getting them clean again. They got thrown away. They went in the trash. Our old selves, soaked in sin, are like those disgusting clothes. And Jesus comes to us and says, when I died and when you died with me, they're in the trash. You have died to sin. You're alive in me. He's saying, don't keep getting them back out of the trash and putting them back on. It doesn't make any sense to put on nasty clothes. It's gross. Practically speaking, you would think somebody was crazy if they put those clothes back on, right? And yet, it's a struggle for us, isn't it? Sin still remains. Those dirty clothes, we keep getting them back out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Paul talks about it again a different way in Ephesians 4. Assuming that you have heard about him, this is Jesus, and that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so when Paul comes to us and says, there are things for you to do in the Christian life, he is talking about putting off the old self, putting off the dirty clothes, putting off sin, putting on the new self, putting on clean clothes, putting on the character and the righteousness of Jesus. Now, there is a church word for this. So don't, I think churchy words are really, really helpful. So don't shut down your brain. I think this can be really helpful. And the church word for this is sanctification. There is a process through the goodness and grace of God that he has decided to bring people to himself. And it's always the same. And it has three parts. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, the justification part goes along with when Paul tells us about our position in Christ, what God has already done. That's justification. Justification, y'all, is... It is a declaration of God of our position in Christ. Uh, Justification is a legal word. It's like a legal declaration that God in his grace and his love made a plan before the beginning of time that he and the Son and the Holy Spirit would work together and they would save sinners. And they do it without the help of sinners. They do it without any input from us. It is fully a gift and fully the work of the Trinitarian God. So in justification, what happened though, is that Jesus put off his glory. He was in heaven, he had helped create the earth. He put off his glory and he came down and he took on the form of man. He limited himself to a body. He humbled himself. He then lived perfectly and righteously he never did anything wrong and he did everything right that he was supposed to do to be obedient to his father he lived the perfect life and then after taking off his glory he put on our sin all of the nastiness of the ways that we disobey we do the things we're not supposed to do and we don't do the things we are supposed to do he put it all on himself and that's what happened at the cross and so justification is that when God looks at his children, at you and me who are in Christ and trust him alone. What he says is, I declare you righteous. When I look at you, I see my son. I see all of his obedience and I'm so, so very pleased. It is a legal declaration of your position in Jesus. Now, the thing that feels tricky about it is as Christians, we're like, that's great. But I still sin, right? Well, it would have been lovely if in that justification, God had decided to also zap us and be like, and you won't sin anymore. You're going to be just like Jesus was on the earth. And he's going to do it, but not yet. So what that brings us to is we have our position in Christ, in our justification, But then what Paul moves to is practically our sanctification. And that is the life of every Christian. And it involves the putting off and the putting on. It's exactly where we are in scripture today. 
So in our sanctification, it is putting off sin. It is turning away from sin. And y'all, it is only possible because the Holy Spirit lives in us. A person who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them is not able to do this. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. But unlike justification, where we didn't have any part of it, we are so thankful that God chose to do that. Sanctification, he says, this is by the power of the Holy Spirit and your effort. You have work to do. You have work to do to put off sin and to chase after the righteousness of Jesus and to put it on. So you are, in essence, growing up into the person that God has already declared you to be. Now, um, the third step. So that's through all of life. Um, and through life, we, I'm not going to get to the third step yet because we got to stop here for just a second. Um, <laughs> the struggle is that the sin still remains. God has declared us righteous. He has not zapped the sin away from us. And so we struggle. And, you know, when we talk about the life of a Christian being a life of repentance, that's where this comes in. Because we stumble and we mess up and we fall down. And there is Jesus saying, your position has not changed. That has not changed. And there is forgiveness for all of the sin that still remains. And in this phase, we are prayerfully and working towards hating that sin and killing that sin. Because, y'all, a lot of times as Christians, sometimes we still love our sin. It's just true. And we are working with the power of the Holy Spirit to make that not true of us anymore. But it's not completely not true until glorification, which if you looked back is what in verse 4 of this Colossians was talking about when um, Paul said uh, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When We are waiting for Jesus to come back again. And when he does, and when he ushers in, after judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, those who are in him will then be fully and completely righteous. The sanctification will be over. And he will, I mean, if you want to say it this way, he will zap us. Because we're not going to be there. We're probably not, we're not even going to be like a step away. Like, ooh, I've gotten so much more like Jesus. It's just a little hop until I'm there. I mean, there's going to be a lot of zapping still to do, let's be honest. But we will no longer struggle with sin. And we will be like Jesus in his righteousness. It's a miracle. Um, another way to look at this this is that is helpful, and this is, I did, this is, I I did not make this up, um, but it's helpful, is a way to look at how we interact with sin and really our ability uh, to sin or not sin is, you can look at it this way. In Eden, at creation, Adam and Eve were able to sin. They, were, they had the ability, and they did. Eve took the fruit, they rebelled, they were able to sin, and they did, which ushered in the fall. And in the fall, all humanity through them became unable to not sin. That means that every single person who ever walked on the earth other than Jesus was unable not to sin. Every single one of us sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a single person who does not. We are unable not to sin. 
But in Christ, those who are in Christ are enabled to not sin. Now, we don't do this perfectly. But a believer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to choose to not sin. You are able to choose to not have that affair. You are able to choose to not gossip. You are able to choose. We have the ability through the Holy Spirit. Do we always do it? Absolutely not. We are not made perfect, but we have the ability. In the resurrection, at the end of time with Jesus, we will be unable to sin. What a good day that will be. It will not be possible. Those who are in Christ and with him will not be able any longer to sin. There will be no struggle. Now, knowing this, let's take a look at putting off the old self. So looking back in verse 5, Paul starts with two lists. He gives those two long strings of sins that we are supposed to put off, the old self. The first list is a list of sexual sin. And the second list is kind of a list of social sins that involve anger and lying and pride. So the sexual sin list, starting in Colossians 3.5, reads, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul talks about sexual sin um, in a lot of his letters, a lot of them. It's actually talked about a lot in the Bible. Um, another place, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the thing about sex that I think a lot of times Christians don't do well, God is for sex. <laughs> He is highly in favor of sex. He created it. He created us, male and female, to have great sex in marriage. And we're, we're not good at teaching that to our children and living that way and viewing sex that way. But it is true. He gives it to us as a picture of the intimacy that he wants to have with his people and that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have with each other. The love and the trust and the security and the intimacy. Sex in marriage is supposed to be a beautiful picture of that. It only becomes a problem when we take it out of the covenant place it's supposed to live in. And then our sexuality no longer reflects what it's supposed to. When we turn inward, uh, when, we, when sexuality becomes selfish, when sexuality goes outside of marriage, it no longer reflects the love of God. It becomes distorted, and it causes damage. It causes damage to ourselves and others always. Um, but we can look at this and see. We can look at this list, and we can see there was some purpose in how Paul put this together. It grows from a desire and ends in the outward action of sexual immorality. So we can start with covetousness. If you look at that list, um, it actually, the inward actually starts at the, at the end of the list. Don't know why he did this. And what it starts with is the outpouring of it with a sexual immorality. But it starts with covetousness, which is idolatry, which at first glance feels out of place because you're like, wait, covetousness means like 
I want the clothes that my friend has or her house, like that's what, well, actually covetous just, covetousness is just wanting anything that is not yours to have, that you're not supposed to have. Um, and sexual immorality, the covetousness um, is actually, I'll read this in a minute, it's, it's lusting for something that you should not have. Um, in the Old Testament, idolatry was actually talked about pretty often. Uh, God talked about it in sexual terms. When he would talk about his people Israel worshiping other idols, he talked about them prostituting themselves to, to other idols. There's a very, the, the intimacy in the sexual language is used a lot there when God talks about idolatry in the Old Testament. Um, and so what happens then is this coveting something that is not ours to have sexually, um, it leads to this. One author put it this way. Long before the mouse clicks on an image or a flirtation or a sexual act takes place, the heart has been taken captive by another god. Notice Paul states that idolatry is related to covetousness. To covet is to lust for something you do not have. In sexual sin, it is to lust for something you should not have. In other words, the sexually immoral person desires something prohibited and enshrines it as a God in his own life. So, Paul is he's pretty clear. We know, we, we have all lived in one form or another um, through the um, disasters that can be caused by sexual sin and the harm that can come. And Paul is real clear to say, put it to death, run away from it. It will only hurt you. It will only hurt you and the people around you. And um, in this putting off, Paul's, he's really clear. And it's as if he's coming to us and saying, don't play. Don't play with it. Don't play with it. So, you know, uh, covetous desire, idolatry in your heart, and you're just, you're feeling kind of, eh, and just some attention would be, it would be, it would really make you feel a little better. And some attention from a man would make you feel pretty good. And then you start thinking about it, and somebody who gives you a little attention, and you start thinking, well, now, oh, let me back up. This is not if you are not married. If you are single, and this man is single, and he loves Jesus, I mean, go for it. Like, let's talk about flirting. Let's talk about some flirting methods. If you or he are married, and you are not available, like, let's, let's make some real distinctions here, right? That's important. Friends, Paul is coming and saying, don't mess with it. When you, if it starts, if it takes root and you start thinking about some man that's not your husband, you cut it off. You get away from him. You, I mean, you go to drastic measures so that it is not an option because your sinful heart will take you down that path so fast. And before you know it, all hell has broken loose. And we are so capable of it. Every single one of us is capable. Um, Clay and I, when we were, we, and it's funny, we, I'll, have to, I'll have to ask him about this again. I, we hadn't talked about it recently. When we were younger, we used to talk about this, like the, we called it red light, green light. And it was like, you know, and he, he and his group of guys um, actually is who came up with this. He's like, it's like there's this thing with people. It's like you have an invisible light over your head. That's like a green light that's like, 
Yeah, sure. Flirt with me, right? I'll talk to you. Or there's a red light that's like, yeah, no, mm -mm, not doing it. Like, don't even bother coming my way, like a blaring red light. And it's like Paul is coming and saying, church, have a red light. Unless it is your husband or wife, have a red light. It will only hurt you to turn on a green light. He then moves, as we get a little further in, to the second list that is more social sin. And remember, he's talking to believers. Paul is not talking to people outside of the church. He's talking to the church. This is a letter to a church. And starting in verse 8, he says, To these social sins, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. And once again, we have a list that moves from attitudes in our heart to something coming out of us that is harmful and sinful. The first two, anger and wrath, uh, are really closely related. Anger can be defined as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. And wrath takes it a step further, and it is strong, vengeful anger. When you get to malice, that then brings in the intent or the desire to do evil. When you wish malice towards somebody, you're starting, you're starting to wish evil on them. And then the final two, slander and obscene talk, describe the verbal manifestations of malicious attitudes that are in your heart. Here, when it talks about obscene talk, it's, he doesn't mean like cuss word, like don't say potty words. Obscene talk, a better translation here is harsh and abusive language. Your language should not be harsh and abusive. So again, it might look kind of like this. Somebody hurts your feelings. Maybe even rightly so. Maybe they do something that is truly hurtful and you're really hurt. They're unkind. They're mean. They say things about you or your children. Who knows? It really hurts. Legitimately, it hurts. But then you kind of stew on it a little bit. And the more you stew on it, the angrier you get. And the angrier you get, the more it starts to take over. And then the malice comes in and you're like, I'm just going to let her have it. I can't believe she would say that about me. I can't believe she did that to me. The malice. And man, when it gets going, what happens next? You may say really hateful things to her, or you may talk really bad about her behind her back. Either way, it's so destructive. And remember, he's talking about in the church. This is believers doing it to each other. It's so, so harmful. Next, he moves on and says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So, y'all, God is the source of truth. When our identity is in him, there's no place for lying. We are then no longer reflecting him, and it is amazing how even if we don't do, we're, I'm like, like, I mean, I don't, I don't lie, like, I don't lie. Like, and then I started studying this lesson, and I was like, oh, wow. I think I do. I think I do in little ways. I do shift the story or not say the whole thing or I'm so sorry I couldn't make it. I didn't get the email. Yeah, I did. I got the email. And I either didn't want to come or I didn't plan well or I forgot. But what I said to you was, I'm so sorry I didn't see the email. That is a lie. <laughs> Friends, 
Paul is saying, don't do it. There is no place for us to live like that. Why are we so concerned with our image? Our identity is in Christ. Don't lie to one another. Don't do the big lies, but don't lie to one another. Um, and then we get to this next little part that at first glance, kind of like this feels out of left field, where he says, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is pride. He's talking about pride in the church. He is saying that in Christ, we are all equal. We all have the same position in the family of Jesus. And we are not to consider ourselves better than anyone else. The first two kind of make sense. The Jew and Gentile, uncircumcised and circumcised, for them, you know, the Jews were like God's chosen people. And they were not real happy about it when the gospel went out to the Gentiles too. So he's coming and saying, hey, you're not better than them. You're not like higher on the step than them. Uh, the next one is weird, the barbarian and Scythian, but it's actually helpful commentators that these people were from a different region and their language was different and basically like they weren't as educated and so they didn't talk as well educated and their manners weren't as good, right? In high school, I had a teacher who always said, above all, we must have couth. And she taught us what couth was like on the wall. They were uncouth right so there's there's the temptation of the people in the church to be like i mean they do not use proper english double negatives right and they're man they just are not and paul is saying there's no place for it slave and free self-explanatory one commentator said although the categories may be different the church today continues to make superficial distinctions with which Christ eliminates in order to unite us as one body. Our churches draw invisible lines and build invisible walls based on ethnic, social, gender, and economic factors. And it's like Paul is saying, hey church, hey, all of y'all who are equal in Christ, stop doing it. Stop trying to climb a social ladder because for a Christian there is not one. You are all equal. Your position is all the same in Jesus. So why does Paul spend so much time? Y'all, so much of the Bible, so much of the New Testament is spent talking about sin. It really is. Um, well, that little phrase in verse 6 that says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, that is why he talks about it all the time. Because the punishment for sin is the wrath of God. And y'all, there is such joy for us in Christ because our position is that Jesus already took that wrath. And we don't have to be fearful. But God takes sin seriously, and so we take sin seriously. And there is no place for an attitude that says, because of my position, I can just do whatever I want. I'm forgiven, and God will forgive me. So it's not a big deal if I sin. The three things, the justification, sanctification, and glorification, always go together. And for a believer who is in Christ, there is always then a call to put away sin and to turn away from it. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. And if you want to turn there, it's a little bit longer, um, but it's very helpful. Because um, obviously they, the Romans were, do, they were wanting to live and kind of live however, woohoo, Jesus loves us, that's great, now we're going to do whatever we want. And Paul responds to this and says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from sin and are no longer enslaved by it. And if your position is in Christ, then practically you do have the power of the Holy Spirit to choose not to sin. He goes on to tell us to put on the new self. We get to verse 12 here in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, so what is Paul telling us to put on? He is telling us to put on the qualities of Jesus, that we are being renewed through our minds after the image of our creator. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you look like Jesus. Never perfectly and always really far from it. Our position in Christ, our justification, is a thing you can't see. We want to talk about being hidden with Christ and God and the invisibility. You can't look out at a room of people and know, like, she's justified, she's not justified. She, you, can't, you can't see it. But as a believer, Paul is coming and saying, this sanctification part, this putting off and putting on, other people should be able to see that. It's a thing that is outwardly seen. We are practically instructed to work out our salvation because it is God who is working in us. When we put off, when we're called to put off and put on, we are called to effort. It's like if you have a garden and you plant it and then you walk away and do nothing. It will every time grow up with weeds and become a disaster. There is, there's no change in our lives if we don't participate. It's not possible without the Holy Spirit, but nothing happens if we don't put forth effort. Putting on the new self requires you to choose. It practically requires you to walk through life empowered by the Holy Spirit and through the means of grace, of prayer and worship and the word. And it requires you to choose, to look out at your options in your life and choose to follow Jesus. Um, now we get to this next part. And it's really almost comical because the Bible is so very practical. In the same sentence where it tells us to put on the compassionate hearts and the kindness and the humility and the meekness and the patience, the, the same sentence goes into 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's like Paul saying, put on, put on all of this clothing of Jesus because you people drive each other crazy because you still got sin in you and you are annoying and you get angry and you hurt each other. So you're going to need to forgive each other. God has done for us in Jesus. And then we, we remember, we remember how God has forgiven us. And then we turn to that person who hurts us and we choose to forgive. It's how the body of Christ will look different. We choose compassion instead of anger. We choose kindness instead of wrath, humility instead of pride, forgiveness instead of vengeance. The Bible says they will know you by your love. The people of God are able to look better, to, to live differently, to look like Jesus because of the power Verse 14 says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It all started with love when God decided before the beginning of time to save a people and bring us to himself. And it all ends up in love with what it comes back and brings out in us when we look at him and our grateful hearts can then turn to other people and love them and turn back to God and love them. I want to end with this phrase because I think there's this phrase about how God loves us that really gives the motivation for all of this, putting off and putting on. Because, I mean, I feel a little tired talking about it. It is not easy. Paul comes and he's like, hey, for the rest of your life, this is going to be a struggle. It's not ever going to end. You are going to battle sin for the rest of your life until Jesus comes back. And, oh, what a joyful party and rest that will be when we don't do this anymore. But until then, you're going to do it. But there's a motivation, and that motivation comes through a father who loves you so much. Uh, I was with a group of friends recently, and one of my friends was talking about her kindergarten-age daughter's teacher. And she was talking about... What a great teacher she was. She's great. She's great at teaching all the things. But what makes her especially amazing is the way she said, all of those kids know that she adores them. And they feel like they're her favorite. And man, they're ready to hear what she has to say. And it is as if Jesus comes and takes your face And because he is God, he has the capacity to say it about every single one of his children and it be 100% true. And it is as if he comes and he takes your face and he says, I picked you. I love you. You are my favorite. You're my very favorite. I love everything about you. I made you just the way you are. You make my heart sing. And then he gives you a big old hug puts his arm around you and he says, okay, let's go. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. If you fall down, I'll pick you up. You got some things you need to let go of. I'm going to help you with that. They're not good for you, but we're going to do it together. And if you'll come with me, I will show you what a full life really is. And I'm going to be with you through that too. And then at the end of this long walk, 
we're going to have a party. And we are going to dance and sing and eat and work and be joyful together forever. And it sounds pretty good. Y'all, let's pray. Father, I pray, I pray that we would be so captured by your love for us, that our hearts would be so convinced that you want the best for us, that, Father, becoming like Jesus is what we were made for, that we will find the most satisfaction, the most security, our truest selves when we become more like you. Father, would you give us the power to put off sin, to hate sin, to hate the sin that we love. Would you make it true of us? Would you make us more like Jesus? And in the process, Father, would you have us love you and love other people? It's in his name we pray. Amen.